I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you're listening in today and hope you and yours are having a terrific holiday season. This month, I am offering a free report titled Inflation Will Continue, Why It Will Continue, and What to Do About It. That's obviously my perspective. If you'd like to dig into that topic, I'd invite you to get that report. You can do so by visiting the website, www.requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. When you go there, let me know where to mail the report. I'll mail you the report as well as some bonus information. Again, the website is requestyourreport.com. You know, often this time of year, when you're talking about stocks, we talk about the idea that a Santa rally can occur. And a Santa rally is the name really given to a year-end rally in stocks. Now, I am recording today's program on the 21st of December, so there's 10 days left in the year for a Santa rally to occur. And my crystal ball doesn't work either. I can't tell you if we are going to see a Santa rally. At this point, I think that um, it's looking less likely that we'll see at least a significant Santa rally. And I think that the evidence suggests that we are at or near a major top in stocks. I believe the evidence suggests that we have stocks now in a bubble. And this past week, Charles Hugh Smith commented and provided six conditions that show that stocks may be in a bubble. And I would certainly agree with Mr. Smith's opinion. So in this segment, I want to talk to those of you that have stocks or stock funds, perhaps, in your 401k or IRA, and I would encourage you to get this month's report and the bonus information because it will introduce you to a concept that may help you protect yourself and protect your assets from a market decline. So let's run through the requirements for a bubble top in stocks. One, retail investors, also known as dumb money, are all in and they're buying the dip with absolute confidence. That means when stocks decline, eager retail investors put more money into the market. Now, those who have been investing for a long time who have live through other bubbles, know there are a lot of moving parts to this retail money going all in. One, the pain of the last bubble bursting has finally faded, and the pain has been replaced by greed. And certainly when you take a look at all the different assets, in addition to stocks that are bubbling, I would argue, What we're seeing today really resembles a casino. I mean, we have cryptos, we have NFTs, megatech. We have a lot of digital assets being bid up. Prudence and caution are being thrown to the wind. The attitude now in the market is the more money you put into the bet, the bigger the rewards, despite the fact that the risk of the market now, in my view, significantly uh, outweighs the reward. I talked here on the program a couple weeks ago that Warren Buffett's longtime partner, Charlie Munger, who's a very sharp guy at the age of 97, by the way, 
noted that Mr. Buffett and himself have nearly $150 billion sitting in cash. And Munger and Buffett are stock investors. That really tells you all you need to know about stocks. Leverage use. The use of margin loans, borrowing money to buy stocks. That activity is at an all-time high, and there is a significant amount of confidence that the Fed is not going to let stocks decline. The Fed will step in, and the market will continue to rally. And you're hearing people say, like at the top of other bubbles, saying that this is a new era. The old rules no longer apply. That was heard in 1929, prior to the stock market crashing. It was heard in 1999, before tech stocks blew up, and we're hearing it again now. Now, the second thing that makes me believe that stocks may be in a bubble, and this is again from an article published by Charles Hugh Smith, is that insiders, we might call insiders the smart money, Insiders who have more knowledge of what's actually going on than the retail investors are now selling. In fact, if you take a look at insider selling, CEOs and corporate insiders now unloaded an all-time record $15.59 billion of stock in November. When people in the know are selling... Maybe you should be thinking about it as well. Now, the third thing that makes me believe that stocks are in a bubble is that we have many stocks now faltering. Market leadership is among just a few companies now. So when you look at 80% of stocks really falling in a major index, and the overall index rising because of a handful of gains in a few mega stocks, it tells you that the end may be near. When you look at recent market activity of a couple weeks ago, all three market indices, the Dow, which has 30 stocks, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ, were all led higher by one company, Apple, which added hundreds of billions of dollars in market capitalization in just a few days. So we don't have many stocks making new highs. In fact, we've talked here on the program with Dr. Robert McHugh of a technical indicator called a Hindenburg Omen when there are a lot of stocks making new highs and a lot of stocks making new lows at the same time. Market crashes typically happen after a Hindenburg Omen. The fourth thing that makes me believe the market is at a top is that short sellers have almost given up. Now, short sellers are investors that are betting on a stock market decline. Right now, we have short interest at a multi-year low. There's not a lot of short interest. There's not a lot of investors betting on the market to decline. Now, you might say, well, that's bullish. There's nobody betting on the market's decline. Nobody betting on a future decline in the market. However, short sellers 
are really the last line of defense against a market gathering momentum into a crash. See, when short sellers are wrong, they have to cover their bets by buying back stocks, which creates demand. If you don't have many shorts, you're losing some market demand. We have extreme buy-the-dip euphoria, as I mentioned, while market internals weaken, and the risk-reward ratio that I mentioned just a moment ago is ignored. And there's a lot of talk about there out there about the Fed managing to keep inflation under control while keeping the stock market at a permanently high plateau. Those are Mr. Smith's words, not mine. However, when I hear the words permanently high plateau, I'm reminded of what Irving Fisher said in 1929. A couple weeks before the market decline began at the end of October in 1929, Mr. Fisher, who was a Yale PhD, a smart guy, said that he believed that stocks had reached what was now a permanently high plateau and that there would likely not be any future market decline. We have that same type of talk going on today. Now, is a crash imminent? I don't know. Is a crash inevitable? I believe so, but again, I don't know. But Mr. Smith offers some interesting perspective through a quote by Thomas Hobbes. Mr. Hobbes observed, Hell is the truth seen too late. So you don't want to be a day late. You're better to be early. And to that end, I would encourage you to examine Where are you invested in your IRA and 401k? Is that congruent with when you're going to need to use money from those same investments? I've got some resources that I will be very glad to make available to you this week. We have the report that I will make available to you titled, Inflation Will Continue, Why It Will Continue, and What to Do About It. There's also some bonus information on this very topic. Uh, Just go to requestyourreport.com to get your copy of the report and the bonus information. That's requestyourreport.com. I'll be back with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program uh, is returning guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Many of you who are longtime listeners will recognize Alistair as the head of research at Gold Money. Uh, He is a prolific author. And you can learn more about his work at goldmoney.com. And uh, he has uh, all his work posted uh, on the insights portion of the website. So check it out as I do. And Alistair, welcome back to the program. That's my pleasure, Dennis. So Alistair, uh, the big news here in the United States, as far as the Fed is concerned, is that they're going to turbo taper. They're going to uh, uh, stop quantitative easing and by... uh, by March or so, the, the whole program will have stopped. I did a little back-of-the-napkin math, very crude math, and it seems to me that in order for them to do that, someone else has to step up and buy U.S. government debt. Is that flawed reasoning? No, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, QE isn't exactly um, the Fed going out and buying um, newly issued government debt. But what it is, is 
the Fed buying debt off uh, pension funds and insurance companies, and they in turn have to go out and reinvest the cash proceeds, which are literally run off the printing press for them uh, to pay for uh, the um, government and agency debt, which the Fed then puts onto its balance sheet. Um, so in a roundabout way, yes, you're right. Um, the uh, cutting back on uh, the monthly QE is going to make it more difficult for uh, the uh, U.S. government to raise um, the necessary funds to fund the budget deficit. And the budget deficit um, uh, seems to me to be an increasing problem um, every month. So, Alistair, when you were on the program uh, almost four months ago, uh, you talked about the fact that uh, the United States was really tracking the hyperinflation uh, that was experienced in France in the early 1700s under John Law. Has anything happened since we last talked to make you change your opinion? Uh, no, nothing at all. If anything, uh, the developments since have uh, rather confirmed uh, my opinion, um, to me anyway. Uh, I think that um, we can see the dilemma that the uh, authorities, the monetary authorities uh, now have, and it's an increasing dilemma. Uh, and uh, you touched on uh, the subject of QE. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if uh, we enter a bear market in financial assets, which rising interest rates will certainly trigger, then um, the Fed, in order to maintain economic confidence, uh, will probably have to increase its taper, sorry, increase its QE in order to support the market. And this is exactly what John Law did in 1720. He supported the share price of his Mississippi venture, uh, basically, um, to uh, ensure the price didn't uh, fall uh, as uh, sellers appeared in the market. And this printing of, um, in that case, it was Livre, um, his unbacked Livre, is exactly the same as uh, what the Fed is doing today. And uh, I think that, um, uh, okay, in the short term, they say that they're going to taper, but that, I think, is an intention rather than a fact. We'll have to see how that transpires. And I think it will change. I think their view will change. Uh, if, as I suspect, uh, we enter a bear market as interest rates rise. So, no, it is exactly the same dynamic. And um, it, seems, it seems to me it's very difficult to see how the Fed can get out of this trap. And, of course, the other thing is that uh, the Fed has, um, uh, if you like, it's, it's got a policy of uh, supporting financial assets in order to keep economic confidence going. I mean, this goes all the way back to Alan Greenspan, who stated that as a bold fact. And uh, by keeping, um, uh, if you like, confidence going, they can't afford to let it slip. So uh, if, you know, the idea that uh, they just stand back and let uh, a bear market proceed uh, because they are powerless to do anything about it, um, I don't think is an option. They're going to go in and try and support it. And we've already seen that the other central banks around the world are in exactly the same uh, bind on interest rates. I mean, um, look at the statements coming out of uh, the ECB and out of the Bank of England, for example. We don't hear very much out of uh, the Bank of Japan, but I would think if they do say anything, it would be very similar. They want to sit on interest rates. 
And with all the central banks sitting on interest rates, refusing to raise them, perhaps bar a few basis points, uh, you can see that the hope is that there will be a degree of stability in the foreign exchanges. But that, of course, does not stop the purchasing power of these currencies sliding uh, as um, uh, central banks resist the temptation to raise rates and therefore support the currencies. So, Alistair, it seems that the Fed has has two options here. I mean, if if they they continue with the taper, the 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 budget deficit issue aside, uh, you know, you just brought up the fact that we'll see uh, financial markets react negatively, uh, and then assuming they re-engage in QE at the same level or perhaps even a higher level, uh, we're looking at a hyperinflationary outcome. So. How do you see this ultimately playing out, and, and do you have a sense as to uh, time frames? And I understand that's a very difficult thing to ask. Well, it, yes, I mean, time frame uh, is, is almost, it, that, that is always impossible, I think, other than maybe some uh, broad guidance. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, sort of the underlying uh, problem that the Fed faces is actually very different from uh, what we saw in Germany in the early 1920s. I mean, in the early 1920s, uh, they printed um, uh, uh, paper marks for exactly the same reason as central banks are printing them today. But you didn't have a central bank intervening in financial markets trying to support share prices. So that, I think, is the fundamental difference. And this is why I think the John Law comparison is more apt. Now, that being the case, you can see that um, the financial crisis uh, could actually be a lot more sudden and sharp than uh, what Germany experienced in the early 1920s. So this gives us a little bit of a, a clue, I think, on timing. Once, it starts, once interest rates start rising and uh, undermining um, financial asset values, I think the slide could be really quite quick. Uh, in the case of John Law, um, the, the, um, the Mississippi venture was priced at around about 11,000 livres at the end of February 1720. By the middle of that year, it had fallen to around about three or 4,000 livres. And a few months later, um, any quotation for the livre on foreign exchanges in London and Amsterdam um, just went, went absent. I mean, there was no quote um, for Libra. So uh, if it was effectively worthless. So if you had Mississippi shares, which were worth a notional 4,000 Libra, then it was worth 4,000 Libra, which were in turn completely worthless. So you can see how rapidly the situation can disintegrate. And I think that gives us a very broad indication of the likely timing uh, of this situation. So um, I think we could find that um, by the end of next year, 2022, uh, we're living in a remarkably different world with um, a real crisis in currencies, which I think will envelop certainly the banking system because the banks are horribly over-leveraged, particularly in the Eurozone, also in Japan, and also in the UK. Uh, America is not quite so bad on the leverage basis, but you can see that with an international banking um, uh, systemic problem, um, uh, the American banks will not escape it. 
it, it's um, it, it, it's it's a problem which uh, the Fed again will probably have to come in and uh, throw money at in order to try and save the banking system, and that of course will further undermine the purchasing power of the dollar. It really is, I think, a situation which could deteriorate quite rapidly once it starts. Alistair, arguably, when you take a look at you know the real inflation rate versus you know the the reported inflation rate using the consumer price index, which is uh, obviously very manipulated, very flawed. Uh, you know, John Williams says we're seeing in the United States here, you know, inflation pushing fifteen percent. So are are we not already solidly on that path? Well, yes, I think we are because um, the um, important point behind your comment is that that puts U.S. Treasuries on a record negative real yield. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. If you look at the 10-year Treasury, it currently yields about 1.45%. If prices are indeed rising by a rate close to 15%, then we're looking at a negative yield in real terms, um, uh, indicated at what sort of 13 and a half percent. I mean, this is this is um, uh, unheard of. Uh, and uh, I don't know that one can say that uh, the rate of price inflation is sort of, you know, 15 percent any more than you can say it is uh, the current 6.8 percent, which I think was the last figure that was reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, but there is no doubt about it that government um, bonds are on massively negative yields in real terms, higher than we have ever seen in history. And it's not just confined to the United States. I mean, this is a, a bond market crisis in the making, which is global. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this segment. Uh, Alistair, we do have about uh, a minute, minute and a half left. For our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with gold money, can you fill them in as to what you do? Yes, Dennis, I'd love to. Uh, basically, uh, we uh, offer um, the general public the ability to uh, buy physical um, gold and silver and store it in LBMA um, member vaults. These, these are fully insured vaults. Um, it is effectively a low-cost uh, alternative to owning it securitized, say, in um, uh, ETFs such as SLV or GLD. Um, and uh, not only that, but you have clear title to the metal, which basically means that um, the metal is yours, it's, uh, there's nothing between you and the ownership of that metal, which, of course, is the situation with, with um, uh, ETFs. Uh, and, um, uh, you, you know, you, don't, uh, you can deal in any amount you want. So it's a very cost-effective way of protecting yourself against the problems, which I think are becoming increasingly evident uh, in the global financial system. Well, again, my guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. You can read more of, of his work at goldmoney.com. I'll continue my conversation with Alistair when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I am joined on today's program with Mr. Alistair McLeod. If you missed the first segment, I would encourage you to go to goldmoney.com to read Alistair's work. And Alistair, you know, we're, we're seeing inflation. Inflation is accelerating no matter what measure we use. 
Yet it seems that the price of gold and silver is not reacting as a lot of investors would expect or anticipate it to react. Uh, what, what's the explanation for that in your view? I think, I think Dennis, uh, well, there are several explanations, but uh, so let, let's just try and isolate the ones which are important. I think the overarching uh, explanation is that we live in a world uh, of Keynesian economics. I don't know whether any of your listeners have noticed, but every time there's a statement from the, SM, uh, from the FOMC or from the ECB or whatever, they never actually mention money supply. I mean, these are men, meant to be statements about um, monetary policy, but money supply is never, ever mentioned. And uh, so consequently, um, it's a completely Keynesian approach, and the whole of the investment community has really bought into it, because I never hear any investment managers talking about money supply either. They seem to have dismissed it from, uh, um, if you like, uh, the economics of, um, of, of uh, inflation. Uh, I think that's the first thing. So we've got, an, you know, we've got a problem of people not understanding it. I think subsidiary to that is a further problem, and that is that, of course, physical gold and physical silver are not regulated investments. So that means that investment managers won't look uh, at buying physical gold and physical silver on behalf of the money they manage. So it doesn't really enter into anyone's uh, uh, conversation or uh, it doesn't appear as an, as, as an investment alternative to the more mainstream equities and bonds. So I think that's, that's the, the first uh, problem. I think the second problem is there's been a change in banking regulations, which um, involves something called the net stable funding ratio. Now, this is introduced under Basel III. And uh, basically, it makes it more difficult for a bullion bank to run an uneven position in gold or silver or any other commodity for that matter. Um, it makes it more difficult because it is more expensive to fund. And what this uh, has led to is uh, these banks have tried to extricate themselves from uh, derivative markets. And in doing so, um, they have tried to make sure that nobody is bullish about gold or silver. So they have been very successful in uh, managing prices downwards to close down open interest, particularly on regulated exchanges such as COMEX. And so we've got the situation where both gold and silver have fallen over this year. Admittedly, the previous year they had a reasonable performance, but they've fallen from January. Uh, and I think silver is down roughly 16% on the year, something like that. And this is a time when money supply has increased really very, very dramatically, and it's been increasing for two years. So it's all a bit counterintuitive, but I think those are the principal reasons why gold and silver have underperformed. And, of course, once this, um, in terms of timing on the Basel III regulations, um, London in particular will start applying these regulations uh, from January, um, January coming up, and that's literally in about two or three weeks' time. So I think we've, we're coming to an end of, of suppression for that reason. Uh, and I suspect that, uh, therefore, on that basis, it would be rather, uh, 2022 will be rather like um, uh, letting the brakes off, if you like. Uh, and so um, I would hope that uh, the, you know, the sort of 
derivative markets will start contracting a bit more. And that, of course, will release demand, which is at the moment tied up in paper gold and paper silver, uh, to go and buy uh, the physical metals. Alistair, when you take a look at gold and silver, uh, that gold-silver ratio now is about 80. And for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that, it takes about 80 ounces of silver to equal one ounce of gold price-wise. Um, what's your outlook for both gold and silver? And uh, you know, do, do you have a favorite and do you have a, a forecast? Well, um, I, I, I never make forecasts is the short answer because what we're looking at is not so much the prices of gold and silver rising, but what we're seeing is the purchasing power of the currencies which we measure them in falling. And uh, that, of course, is a, is a very difficult thing. The rate of that fall is a very difficult thing to forecast. All I will say is I do expect the prices of both gold and silver reflected in declining currencies to be significantly higher by the end of 2022. Now, that said, the gold-silver ratio um, at 80, uh, you're right to point out, is um, uh, exceptionally high. If we returned to a situation where both gold and silver were accepted as money, we'll be returning to the situation of the middle of the 19th century, where the gold-silver ratio was more in line with uh, around about 15 to 20 to 1 rather than 80 to 1. Now, what this means is that uh, as fiat currencies um, lose their credibility, we're likely to see uh, the price of silver move up more rapidly than gold in order to close that um, gold-silver ratio down from 80 towards a sort of perhaps initially something like a 20 to 30 times level. Now, that implies a significant outperformance um, of silver relative to gold. So I think in terms of preference, I would certainly have some silver, and I would have it not only because of the gold-silver ratio being, um, I think, completely wrongly pricing silver, but I think, um, I think also from the point of view of it being useful as physical money. Now, while central banks don't have silver, I have no doubt that the demise of paper currencies means that they will have to reintroduce gold into the system. And uh, then silver, I think, will have a subsidiary role to gold, which is why I'm looking at a gold-silver ratio perhaps of between 20 and 30 rather than uh, between 15 and 20. So um, I think there is a lot of potential in silver. There is another argument for silver which I think is well worth um, uh, putting forward, and that is that uh, with um, uh, the attack on fossil fuels, um, things, you know, metals which are important to electricity, such as uranium uh, and uh, also uh, copper, um, have performed exceptionally well this year. Now, silver hasn't. Silver has gone down because it has been treated, if you like, not as an as industrial metal, but as a quasi-monetary metal which needs suppressing. The situation on silver is such that demand for it, I think, is going to go uh, become extremely strong from a commercial point of view in the absence of a currency collapse. So silver, to me, looks like a good two-way bet. I think commercial demand over the next three or four years is likely to be extremely strong. And if we have a situation where that doesn't actually come through because 
we have an economic and monetary collapse, you have got the benefit of it being restored as a monetary metal. Alistair, as you were talking, uh, you know, uh, and we talked a bit uh, before we started recording as well, there are central banks around the world that have been accumulating precious metals. Uh, is that kind of a preview of things to come in your view? Uh, yes, it, it is, very definitely. I think it's um, a very clear indication from many, many central banks that they are concerned that the way, um, uh, if you like, the, the international currency situation is developing. I mean, some, some uh, uh, central banks are moving away from the dollar um, to an even greater extent. I mean, if you look at uh, the Russian central bank, uh, they almost uh, get rid of dollars as soon as they come in. And one of the things they go for, of course, is gold. And they have been accumulating gold for some time now. China doesn't declare her gold. She just sort of sits there. But I, um, I know from uh, when the regulations uh, appointing the People's Bank of China uh, to manage the state's gold acquisition program back in 1983, that the Bank of China, the People's Bank of China, actually has accumulated an awful lot of gold, which, as it were, is off balance sheet. Now, you have got an alliance between both uh, Russia and China, uh, who look to control the whole of the Asian continent and as much of the European end of it as, uh, as, as possible. Um, this is what the Silk Roads are about, and so on and so forth. Um, and this is something which uh, is you're sort of moving the world away from uh, American imperialism, if I can put it that way. Uh, so we are seeing, I think, huge changes. And um, it, it, it revolves around energy as well. So there is this extra problem, I think, that we face, that the, the, the worse uh, relations develop between America and China, America and Russia, Europe and Russia, perhaps, uh, the um, more destabilizing in monetary terms the whole situation could become. Because we can look at the acquisition of gold, both by China and Russia, as their insurance policy against actions they may take, which will destabilize the West. So um, this is a, an interesting geopolitical situation. And at the moment, uh, Russia's uh, um, uh, approach to the whole situation is to try and drive a wedge between America and her NATO partners in Europe. And she is using energy to this end. I mean, even today, we heard that um, gas... Uh, going into Europe through one of the pipelines has been completely shut off. So you can see the pressure is being built on Germany in particular, but also the other East European states with Russian energy. It will be withheld increasingly uh, to drive a wedge between America and uh, her allies in Europe. And this is particularly um, involves uh, Ukraine. And I think that the saber-rattling that's going along the, the Ukrainian border uh, is all part of this geopolitical battle. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. You can read his work at goldmoney.com. Alistair, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, very much appreciate your work. I know the listeners uh, do as well and would love to have you back down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Dennis. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm Dennis Tubergen. 
And thanks again to Mr. Alistair McLeod for joining us on today's program. All this month, I'm offering a special report titled Inflation Will Continue, Why It Will Continue and What to Do About It. If you request that report, I'll also send you some bonus information. Go to the website, www.requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report and the bonus information, and I will be very glad to get it out to you. Again, that's requestyourreport.com. Well, on today's program, I have been talking about stocks and talking about the likelihood of a year-end Santa rally. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the first segment today, I'm recording today's program on the 21st of December. And at this point, I believe a Santa rally or a significant Santa rally looks a lot less likely. Now, David Stockman, who's a former budget director, uh, he was a budget director in the Reagan administration, wrote an article this past week that really examines how extended stocks are at this point. He said this, the fundamental consequence of 30 years of Fed-fueled financial asset inflation is that the price of stocks and bonds have way overshot the mark. In other words, all this currency creation by the Fed has created a stock and bond market bubble. We talked about that on today's program with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Stockman continues by saying that's why what lies ahead is a long stretch of losses and investor disappointment as the fat years give way to the lean. This will hit hard the bullish investor herd and aggressive buyers of calls who can't imagine any other state of play. They will be shocked to learn, but only after it is way too late, that the only money to be made during the decades ahead is on the short side of the market by buying puts on any of the big averages. And if you're not familiar with puts, a put is an option that you buy that allows you to make money as a market declines. Now, Stockman says the reason for this, the reason he has this opinion, is very straightforward. Main Street has been overcapitalized. He said it is going to take years for company profits and incomes to catch up with asset values. Now, he gives some examples. He said, let's go back to 1987. That's when Alan Greenspan first became the chair of the Fed. And he promptly put into place the policy that is being continued today, continued today in an extreme manner, I should say. Uh, At that time, the trailing price earnings multiple on the S&P 500 was about 12 times earnings. That was a valuation level that was pretty healthy. Now, if you look at the gross domestic product of the United States at the same time, it was just under $5 trillion, and the total stock market was valued at $3 trillion. So if you look at the ratio, Wall Street stocks were 62% of the economy, 62% of gross domestic product. Now, that was 34 years ago. Over the past 34 years, monetary policy has gotten more extreme. Over the past two years, it has gotten very, very extreme. 
And over that 34-year time frame, Mr. Stockman points out points out that the Wilshire 5,000 market cap rose by 1,440%. So it went from $3 trillion to $46.3 trillion. So stock value, stock capitalization grew by 1,440%. However, gross domestic product economic output grew by only 375%. So presently, the stock market values 46.3 trillion and economic output is 22.7 trillion. Now if you do the math, that's 204%. So in 1987 when Mr. Greenspan started this wealth effects monetary policy that again has been carried to an extreme today, stocks were 62% of the economy. Today they're 204% of the economy. Now, Stockman says this, if we assume that the 1987 stock market capitalization rate against GDP was roughly correct, that means the Wilshire 5000 should be worth about $14 trillion today, not $46 trillion. So Stockman, with a very reasonable, lucid argument, says, We've got $32 trillion of excess stock market valuation today. Now, Fed policy will likely have this gap widen, and it will widen until it reverses. Stockman says the stock market's capitalization should be falling. It shouldn't be going to nosebleed levels. It's the highest that it's ever been historically. Remember in the first segment I said that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway are sitting on nearly $150 billion in cash. That tells you, as I said, really what you need to know about risk and reward. Stockman says since the financial crisis and the Great Recession, the capacity of the U.S. economy to generate growth and rising profits has been sharply diminished. The real GDP growth rate since the pre-crisis peak in 2007 is just 1.5% per year, which is less than half of the historical average rate of growth. And remember, I shared with you that if you take a look at current stock market valuation as a percentage of economic output, it's at 204%. In 2007, that number was 106%. So in 14 years, it has just about doubled. And while it has doubled, the growth rate of the U.S. economy has been cut in half. If these numbers don't make sense to you, then you're making perfect sense of what I'm talking about today. They don't make sense. These valuations cannot continue. So one of two things will have to happen. One, we'll have to see a correction in the price of stocks. When valuation levels were much lower than today's valuation levels, we have seen a correction nearly every time. Or valuations will have to stay here and the economy will have to catch up with market valuations, but the growth rate is slowing. That seems like a very unlikely outcome. Again, if you're just joining me, I'm offering a free report today titled Inflation Will Continue, Why It Will Continue, and What to Do About It. 
The report and the bonus information will give you more information on the topic I've talked about today. To get a copy of the report, go to requestyourreport.com. That's requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.